0: I'm Matana DeWitt, joined by Dr. Drew Johnson. Welcome to Discover Your Roots, a podcast that will give you tools for understanding and applying the wisdom of the Bible in your own context. In this season, The Problem of Good and Evil, we're digging into the topic of good and evil, finding new and maybe unexpected ways to think about it and respond to it. Let's get started. In the episodes of Season 2, The Problem of Good and Evil, we discuss some heavy topics and instances of evil that can be disturbing, especially for those who have experienced related trauma. We advise caution among listeners. If you find that you need help or support as a result of listening to this podcast, please consult the resources listed in the show notes. All right, we are here for our final episode of Season 2, Really thankful to have you all with us um, throughout this journey. Thank you so much, Drew, for being here and sharing your expertise with us, with our listeners. Um, I'm so happy
1: that you used the phrase, you all. (laughs) I've
0: learned. I've learned from the best. So both of you, thank you (laughs) for hanging out here and uh, (laughs) listening to us. Yes. Um, So this episode, we're going to be talking about how we confront evil. And I think it's going to be really important after all of the... um, the conversations we've had about what, what evil and good looks like in our world, I think it all kind of comes down to, all right, now why, like, what is, what is our role in this? What, what can we do about it? Um, so I want to read this quote and then I want to turn over to Drew to see what you think. Um, instead, oh, sorry. It says, Indeed, indeed the safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. So what does this mean in light of what we've been talking about? Um, What do we do with this?
1: Um, Yeah, so this is from uh, Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis, where um, it's a a master chief demon who is coaching a younger demon on how to basically correctly mislead and dislocate Christians from their God uh, essentially and and I think it's an important one um, it's it's a great book if you've never read it the audio there's a there's an audiobook version read by John Cleese from Monty Python so it's fantastic um, but what it really does is it explores not the obvious open demonic confrontation but that the work of demons he imagines like is probably a lot of really subtle work like you know he encourages his young demon he's like hey during church, See if you can get this guy to like stare up at some spot in the ceiling and imagine that that spot itself is God, and that you know, and like to, like all of these distraction techniques. And this particular technique that he's selling him on is essentially like, hey, um, we're not we're not in a we're in a marathon. We're not in a sprint here. You just need to lead them slowly, kind of remove the indicators that we're bringing them uh, down and this descent into sheol and foolishness. And walking away from God, and that's, that's the best way forward. And I think in the Western society, that's probably what has happened to uh, a lot of our Christian conviction inside and outside the church. Um, so I think this is a, is a good warning for us that um, evil, the badness, the brokenness, the fractured nature of ourselves, our relationships, the reality we live in— um, there's a gravity to that brokenness that will drag everything down, like the, the idea of entropy. Everything will fall apart. The center cannot hold. It, it all falls apart, right? Um, and much the same way um, – sorry, this just came to me now, but – so tell me this is a lame analogy. <laughs> uh, me and my wife both came from her family was a, a broken, tr- like pretty bad divorce. My my parents also pretty bad divorce. Both of our parents after 18 years of marriage. So they were married for a pretty long time and then went through a pretty rough divorces. So when we got engaged, we kind of looked at each other and said, like, are we any different than they were? Like, were they not also in love and thought everything was going to be great? And like, how do we know this is going to work? Um and that was not a theoretical question. That was a very like that was a live question for her and I, and we decided that our metaphor for our marriage is like we're going to fight for it. like the. I know everybody says fight for the like, like this is a really common metaphor now, but we're like, nothing. We are this this marriage is going to be the primary thing that we fight for, even with our kids. You know, when kids come along. The marriage has to be central to everything that we do. And so we we basically said, and if we don't fight for it, we can just guarantee that over time it will fall apart. Some fracture, something will get in there, something will happen that will tear us apart. Um, so we didn't take it for granted for one second that things were just going to go swimmingly. Uh, and that's been still active to this day. And, you know, we have to coach uh, when we do premarital counseling, we coach people who come from really good families. And we have to say, like, I know you're from a really good family, But it still might be wise for you to think about really fighting for your marriage because otherwise it will naturally uh, fall apart. And I think something like that seems to be going on with everything. If we don't fight for community-wide systemic justice and righteousness the way God has called us to, all of this stuff can fall apart. And we swim in a Christian culture. I mean, I know we like to call America secular culture, but... Almost every atheist in America basically has Christian values. They just remove God and, and the gospel from it, but their values are all Christian-driven. So I think you you remove uh, the church from this American context, like this can all fall apart very quickly. So I think we can kind of be thankful that America has Christian values, but we can't presume mm-hmm. at all. And, and I have lots of friends— not in America, who constantly say like, sure, you can say that in America because everybody around you is basically Christian, whether they're an atheist, agnostic, or, or Buddhist. Um, but we can't do that here in France. We can't do that here uh, in South America or something.
0: Hmm, interesting. So given that it's not, <clears throat> it's not uh, guaranteed that we're going to be able to identify when we personally or when we witness situations or people around us start to kind of slip in that downward downward trend of things decaying yeah. <laughs> things getting worse, things becoming evil. You know, if I if I need to remind myself of something, I can set an alarm or a reminder on my phone. We can't necessarily do that and are like, okay, two years from now, remind remind myself to reevaluate, make sure that I'm that I'm doing okay, right. that I'm not that I'm not going in some kind of downward spiral. What does it look like for us to knowingly like now that we know this that there's kind of a that there's going to be a, a downward trend if we don't do something differently like if we do nothing things will decay naturally how do we how do we stop that how do we kind of intercept that trend um what does that look like in that marathon lifelong context where it's not just i need to remind myself of this next week but yeah. i need to live in this reminder
1: um, I mean, to be quite honest, I found myself on this slippery slope and starting to see the indications. And part of the indications was, A, some of my Brazilian church friends um, who are continuing to live what I consider they were continuing to fight the good fight for a Christian community in life. And I saw my life diverging from theirs a little bit in the sense of like I didn't quite as strongly. I'm like, oh, OK, yeah, technically, I believe that. But I'm not actually doing the practices that they're doing that I need to be at that point in my life. And also, honestly, I was listening to Scripture in community, like public reading of Scripture. I was hearing it in the community of Christianity. And I was like, oh, yeah, Paul. Oh, yeah, Paul's pretty dogmatic on this. Oh, yeah, Jesus is like not pulling punches. He's really demanding that we step up and and participate in this kingdom. And I'm feeling kind of fat and lazy on this issue, you know. and so it really was being confronted with Scripture and the real lives of Christians who were in that moment in a point of maturity and like uh, a shining example for me that I was slipping. I was letting some things slip that I shouldn't. So you'll find that when you you find people who kind of walk away from the Christian community or never really make any kind of deep sustained contact with Scripture, like this is – bad things are going to happen. Uh, and it's not a cult. It's not like, hey, keep reading our propaganda. So that I mean this is like – we're talking about fostering uh, righteousness and justice in the community. And, we're, and meaning we, as a holistic system, we are prodding each other towards things that we might not even enjoy, but we know are for the sake of all the nations and for the sake of all the people of the earth and for the sake of us as well, even if it's not fun or uh, painful at the time. So I think that checking, I do love to say, uh, I, I, I love James. Uh, I don't remember. Somebody reminded me that, they, they, uh, you know, somebody very casually said, like a student or somebody said something like, well, I still believe in Jesus. And, and, uh, I was telling a, a, a colleague and they said, oh, so they have demonic theology. And I was like, oh, that's a great way to put it. He's referring to James where James says, oh, you believe Jesus is Christ. Great. So do the demons, but at least they're afraid of him, you know? And so going back to that episode where we talked about, what are we afraid of? Like, you do have to have some fear of God and a healthy fear. Like you have a fear of firearms, you know, if you've ever fired a gun, you should have a healthy fear. If you handle snakes, you should have a healthy fear uh, and sometimes be like poop in your pants afraid of them, like that he he will judge you, right? Uh, Ecclesiastes ends with, hey, we can't really know much of it. I mean, we're really, uh, we're, we can be faithful, but we're not going to figure this all out. So what do we do? Um, we keep the instruction of the Torah because God sees everything we do and he's going to judge us. Like, so there's this kind of like, you need to follow the instruction. And Alcoholics Anonymous, they you know, they say, I forget the exact phrase, but you keep working the system because the system works, right? And there is a way in which a community-wide systemic um, enforcement of like, hey, we're going to be just for the sake of our neighbors, that will be good for people. And over the long haul, you should be able to look back and see key times uh, where you can go like, oh, that really, that was good. Um, the phrase, I, I, I'm sure I used it in the last season... Um, but it's so good, I won't, I'll just I'll quote Wesley Hill. He tweeted once about his depression, and, you know, in his times of deep depression, going to church on any given Sunday never helped, but going to church every Sunday always helped. Mm-hmm. So this kind of uh, deep commitment to God's Word and his community will, over time, uh, pay dividends. Um, nice. keeps, us in, keeps us in check, and not, not to brainwash us and, you know— the Bible, if nothing, is like skeptical of everything, right? Like that's mm-hmm. one of the things that the biblical authors are really great. They're like, really? Do you know? Do you understand? <laughs> is that what's going on? You think you got this all figured out? They're constantly prodding us uh, with that message. Um, so, and that's good for us, mm-hmm. for all humans.
0: That's helpful. So you mentioned um, you mentioned demonic theology a second ago, and we talked about demons and the the evil in the supernatural a few episodes back, do you think it would be helpful to kind of readdress that topic here as it relates to um, some of the practical application we're thinking through?
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, and again, going back into the New Testament, the world of the authors there, you know, they're in a Greco Roman world where demons aren't necessarily good or bad. They, they can play both. Uh, but for the Hebrews, for whatever reason, the Hebrews say like, no, if we're calling it a demon or an unclean spirit, It's against God. It's like – it's pernicious. It's like uh, Wormwood – is that his name? I think
0: so. Yeah, Wormwood is the – Okay, yeah. I feel like I'm messing up
1: everything. Yeah, Wormwood. (laughs) Um, They're in there to monkey with whatever God wants to be good. Um, They're associated with idol worship. They're associated with – Uh, death, you know, so there seems to be some views amongst Jews at that time that the reason why demoniacs hang around the cemeteries is because the demons came up out of the dead and entered them. And so, uh, going back to that Jesus and the Forces of Death book by Matthew Thiessen, um, demons are here to monkey with us. And so, even uh, Paul warns people like of deceitful teachers and associates that with the the demonic as well. Um, and so here we go again. So if there's a teacher who can be deceitful and yet popular, that means that we need wisdom and discernment in order to see past these things. And I'll point out this is a, this is from the Torah, Deuteronomy 13, Deuteronomy 18. God promises, "I will raise up prophets for you. I will." He doesn't say this, but this is what it means: "I will authenticate them with signs and wonders," which is what's said there. And then they will mislead you. and in, in Deuteronomy 13, I will cause them to mislead you, to test you. Um, in Deuteronomy 18, they may speak presumptuously and mislead you or, or, or not. So even somebody who is attested to with signs and wonders doesn't mean that you should, you still have to have discernment to see what, whether what they say is from God or not according to the Torah, according to the prophets. and Now we would say according to Jesus' teaching as well. So there's a sense where, and now notice in all of this, Demons aren't scary at all. They're only scary in that, like, conceptual way. Like, wow, they can really mess everything up. But they're mm-hmm. not, like, in the dark scary. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're not Hollywood demonic scary. They're scary in the sense that they mislead. They sow mistrust. They they build on conspiracies of conspiracies. And they basically disrupt the plans of God. So they are the Satans, the, the adversaries of the plans of God. And so um, – the antidote to that, as I was, I think I talked about in a few episodes ago, is in Mark 9, when they couldn't cast the demon out. And I was like, what's up with this? We said, you know, we tried to cast them out. And Jesus said, oh, it only comes out with prayer and fasting, which, again, in the Old Testament or the New Testament, there is no command to either pray or fast. These are wisdom practices of the faithful community. And so Jesus is saying, yeah, the normal, wise practices the, faith, uh, the faithful community of God is doing, those are the kinds of things that must go along with identifying things that are coming from adversaries of God and paying very close attention to live in the way that he is guiding us into. Um, So in some ways, the antidote to all of this is just like being the people that we're supposed to be. Mm. And these are all distractors um, for the most part. Um, Yeah, I think I'd stop there.
0: Okay. So the antidote to the, the scariness of... Demons for one, but then the downward, like the the kind of looming downward trajectory that we're all susceptible to, is just. I think what I think you said it in the previous episode, being the f- being the force of God's righteousness in the world, like building the righteousness of God. It's less of what we're what we're doing wrong or what we're not doing, but focusing on like what is God called us to do? Are we are we doing that thing? And that yeah. almost being like the insulation against against the decay, against the evil.
1: Yeah. And it's not an infinite series of ethical decisions that we're to be. It's the kind of people that we're supposed Mm -hmm. to be, you know, in the way that you talk about virtues, uh, a lot of people talk about, he's a virtuous person. Scripture typically doesn't go into virtuous individuals, although that's required. Um, It's, the, the community of God needs to be virtuous. They need to be built up into And that's the kind of language we read about it. You know, you've been built and established in him who has all power and authorities over all rulers in the air. and So it's like we have nothing to be afraid of uh, and we have everything to confront here. And the, the assumption is that the gravity of the brokenness of the world and these forces that are set out to like be force multipliers of that gravity of destruction, if you let them have their way, they will tear everything down slowly uh drip by drip if they have to um and so we belong to an empire that is building something up uh Mm -hmm. and 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 pushing those forces out if Mm -hmm. i can use all if i can mix all of those metaphors into one Mm.
0: so when it comes to the idea of decay human human decay um what would you say is the number one source of evil in the world that we need to be because i know we've we talked about obviously at this point we've talked about the kind of the the downward spiral that we need to look out for we've talked about the things that many people are afraid of and don't need to be afraid of what would you say if you could like say one thing that is a a source that we need to really pay attention to um, by what the biblical authors are saying, what would that be?
1: Uh, from the Torah to Jesus to Paul, Peter, Peter, James, John, we'll even throw Jude in there, why not? Uh, <laughs> the, I think it's it's a drumbeat. It is like, if you just read all of that literature and say like, what is the thing they're most concerned about? It's practicing justice in the world. And I'm, I'm using like capital J, capital U, capital S, like this form of community that, structures itself in a way to meet the needs the particular brokenness. So for instance in St. Louis they have an international refugee problem uh, or not a problem but they bring international refugees who are coming from the worst places in the world at that time like they're coming out of crisis and trauma, system wide crisis and trauma. It makes sense that the churches would band together and try to help these people who are, you know, many when we had Somali refugees I remember going over to a woman's house who had these children She'd never been – she didn't know what the heater was. She didn't know what the fridge was. She didn't know what the toilet was for, how to use it. Like um, they just needed basic help. They needed money. They needed help get groceries. It makes sense that the shape of the church was shaped to the particular needs uh, of the world that we found ourselves in. And that as that world changed, that we changed the shape of of the church and the way we – Help people out, and we, you know, and it was one of those things where you're just like these are the people who God is sending to us, right? Um, in many ways, it was weird because you don't need to be an international missionary in St. Louis at the time, or Minneapolis is another city. I think Louisville was another city like this. These were ch- cities chosen by the U.S. government to bring these refugees into. Uh, we had Nepalese refugees who were basically uh, Hindu, uh, Hindu religiously. Uh, who were asking us to do Bible studies with them because they'd never heard any of this, and they really liked that we were coming over and we were so nice to them. Mm. Uh, and so we are doing Bible studies every week. They are becoming Christians, and they're going back to Nepal and, and telling their family. Like, you're actually bringing uh, the gospel back out through these. That, that's the kind of building um, where I've seen it work successfully. Uh, and so w- when you're – that was a predominantly white church I was in at that point that wasn't particularly in touch with the immigrant population in St. Louis at that point, all of a sudden, all these people in church are thinking about immigration law. And, well, what does it look like to treat an immigrant uh, equitably, even though they have no constitutional status in the United States? So, like, all these people who have never thought about a lot of these issues are now thinking through it because they now know this family that they've come to love, and they know their children, and they're they're thinking about, oh, the St. Louis public schools – because I now know this family, I now see how bad the school system is. Because I live out in here in the county with the night nice schools, uh, and now I'm confronted by all these realities that I knew were there, but I didn't really touch. And so they're engaging their own city in a new and different way and trying to think about, oh, what does justice look like where I live? And these are people who wonderfully were wonderfully generous. Were, were would take two weeks of vacation a year to go to other countries to build orphanages. So these were very giving, good Christians who wanted to help. And didn't realize all the ways in which they could bring that justice in their own backyards. Um, so those are the kinds of images. And, and again, I had the the I have the benefit of getting to actually witness all of this stuff unfolding over years when I was a pastor, and saying like, "Oh, okay, this is the kingdom of God uh, being established here." Um, there's no like that comes with all kinds of problems and thorny knots and cultural issues and like. I also got, we all got horrible dysentery from one of these families that made us something to eat and drink and like they brought all of their bugs over with them, you know, like whatever bacteria they had in their system, we all got it and we all got super sick just like you would out on a uh, on a missions trip to another country, right? So it comes with all of that, uh, but for the sake of this this woman and her children, we all willingly got dysentery. Uh, which was easy the first time we didn't know it was coming. When we came back over and she served us again, that's when we kind of looked at each other and I was just like, "Okay, I'm the pastor here. I guess I'll I'll eat this one because it would be rude to turn down, right?" Yeah. And so, I was like, okay, here we go, round two, dysentery. <laughs> um, we're doing this again, but but there's a weird way, and which just becomes a joy uh, for the community, and that you know, and so when Paul talks about built up, established joy that surpasses all understanding. He's not talking about happy, slappy, crappy Christians. He's really talking about people who are doing the hard work, mm-hmm. I, I think. That, I mean, that's my interpretation from my experiences in the church when they're, doing, when they're firing on all cylinders on these fronts.
0: Hmm. Would you say that's what pursuing the good looks like? Are there any other examples of what pursuing the good would look like in that sense?
1: Um yeah. I mean, I think there's some ways in which general good. So I get really excited. I have lots of students who've gone on to law school. I, I love writing letters to law school because I don't know anything about law school. I'm like, I was your Bible professor, but I'm <laughs> writing to Harvard Law. And I've had a couple get into Harvard Law oh. and, and finish. And I get really excited when they say, I'm doing family law. I'm doing immigration law. Mm. Like I'm like, oh, you're never going to make money. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, so you like taking a vow of poverty, right? <laughs> um or one who went to Harvard Law who's probably going to do great, but he's already dedicated. I'm going to take so much of my time and do pro bono for specific cases. Um, there's Or that go to Washington, D.C. and work on policy for people who work on incarceration policy. like. Um, these are people who have all the opportunities in front of them. They're brilliant people who have have lots of privileges that have got them. They've worked very hard. They've gotten to these positions, and they've dedicated themselves uh, to making sure that, kind of, as a nation, wherever we can, even as a body politic, we can make sure that we're not abusing and disabusing people that um, that shouldn't be right. Um, so, and I think you could think about this whether you work at a printing factory or, you know, whether you work at a fast food uh, service place, like there's ways in which you can help the people around you as an individual uh, and as families. Um, and it, really, it is basically just saying, we're going to do this. God, help us develop the imagination and the wisdom to see what is needed where we're at. And, and also, I, I always tell people who are delving into this for the first time, I'm like, and treat everything as a trial. Like you know, you might not get it the first time, or you do. You set off to do this one thing, and then you realize you had you didn't understand anything about what was actually going on, and now you need to do this other thing. So, trial and error. And uh, people will not hate you for doing trial and error, where you're really genuinely trying to help and buffer uh, against um, people being mistreated or exploited. Hmm.
0: That's helpful. It's interesting. You mentioned that you know. The concept of justice is so important throughout the Bible, and if we could focus on one thing whenever it comes to pursuing the good and um, and eradicating evil and in, in pursuing the good as best as we can, that it would be that. And I think some people may, whenever they think of justice, think think only of like law, you know, right. like addressing get theirs. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Um, it's interesting as I have. Seen more, especially in in the Hebrew Bible, of what justice looks like. It's so often just like lifting people up at, yeah. at personal cost. Yeah, like when it costs you something, you lift up the person next to you, um, which is something that any of us can do wherever yeah. we are.
1: Yeah, I, I love saying the first because Paul I think plays the Torah sense of justice out in First Corinthians. So think about like a really weird context. If you know the church at Corinth, there's all kinds of crazy stuff: sleeping with their stepmom and getting drunk. The rich people are getting drunk and. Um, like, so he's dealing, and there's a chaotic, kind of charismatic uh, service going on there. So he's got this really weird system, and Paul looks into that, and he's like, you are not unified. Um, and so everything, he comes back to, don't do that. It sows disunity. Um, and then right alongside disunity, he says, uh, he basically keeps repeating this theme of take the loss. Like someone wants to see, like, take the loss. It's better to gain them as a, as a friend or a brother, right? Take the loss for the sake of unity. Take for the loss. And that's within the church, um, and I don't think he thinks that that should be the mentality just facing into the church. I think he thinks that there should be some of that facing outward as well, but that um, that lifting people up for uh, willing to take the loss. I think that's a, a great way to put it. In fact, I'm going to steal that from you because I think that's dead on. That's better, <laughs> that's better than any way I've put it here so far. I should also point out, which this is obvious at this point, but it's worth saying out loud, this isn't about personal piety. This isn't about my own personal spiritual life. Again, it's the soccer team that wins, but the individual players need to play their part, which means they need to be reflecting on, hearing, engaged, and like as an individual, we need to be playing our part. But the biblical authors are talking to the soccer team and the coaches, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And saying, y'all need (laughs) to work together. You all have to play your, your role. What good is a soccer team with a goalie that's a narcoleptic goalie? No offense mm-hmm. to narcolepsis out there. Uh, like you just fall asleep uh, randomly, right? Um, you all have to play your part. You all have to do your, your, your bit. And I think what American religion, and, and including the American religion of Christianity, but the American religion is all about me and my personal spirituality, so if we talked about the number one thing we should be doing is building the sense of justice that you just described so perfectly. Uh the number one thing we shouldn't be doing is building my own spiritual uh spiritual piety, my own spiritual life. We should not be building that. Our own spiritual life should be built in coordination with
0: hmm. the community. It's a it's a result of the doing. The, yeah.
1: yeah. We don't you, we don't
0: set out to spiritually form ourselves you Spiritual, work out with yeah. the
1: team mm. like you stretch and you train with the team
0: mm.
1: I lo- I've That's never used a soccer analogy before but I'm liking it's working. it <laughs> it'll break at some point here but so far it's holding tight so I love it
0: do we have any any more scriptural examples that we could add to this conversation just to kind of flesh out the ideas more
1: um, I mean, I think we going back to that, what probably seemed really controversial at the beginning, but less so now, this idea that God does evil, that God judges, that he brings evil to bear on people. Uh, sometimes people wrongly interpret it as evil and they later interpret it as, uh, oh no, it was for the sake of this other thing that I can now appreciate. Um, but we do have to like big picture acknowledge whether we like it or not, God is love, but Jesus constantly, in fact, I think it's true that he talks more about the judgment that he's going to bring, which in Old Testament terms, we would say it's the evil, the, the raw, it's the bad stuff he's going to have to bring as a part of judgment. Um, so it's carrot and stick. You could be this thing, but if you refuse to be this thing and you turn into this other kind of thing, it's not going to go well for you. You're not going to be able to stand when the time comes where you're held accountable for uh, what you were supposed to be. Um, and that, that as often as... Uh, Okay, forgive me, because some people think Calvin is this particular person, but Calvin was a pastor in Geneva. Uh, here, I'll say Jean Calvin. He was this pastor in Geneva. <laughs> Nobody knows who Jean Calvin is. <laughs> um, and he uh, had this theology of poverty. It's a brilliant theology of poverty that I found very helpful as an urban pastor. Um and he said, like, look, when when you're presented with uh, poverty and you're like somebody has like physical poverty, they're, they're hungry or poor or they don't have enough uh, clothing for the night because of the cold. Jesus is saying it's it's as if that is me, Jesus, myself standing here saying, will you help? Right. As often as you did it for the least of these, you did it to me. And he says, the church's response in that, not that moment, but in that situation, in those complex situations, the church's response is the sign as to whether she belongs to God or not. Wow. Like he puts it hard. I mean, most mm-hmm. people are shocked by what this guy Jean Calvin actually says. <laughs> um But he believed the church's response to poverty and uh, people on the margins is the sign as as to whether they belong to God or not. And he he cites the Torah, the poor you will always have with you. Jesus also said, the poor you will always have with you. And he says, one of the reasons the poor we will always have with us is because they test the church to see whether she belongs, whether they're the bride of Christ or not. Mm, So these are real things that we can do.
0: Mm. So it sounds like you're describing a very – proactive approach rather than a reactive approach.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And I think we all, you know, if you live in a large urban center or maybe even a rural center or rural areas, I mean, we're confronted by people who beg, people who are in hard up situations, people, I mean, I was a pastor at a church on a main street in St. Louis. There are straight up manipulators and liars who come in and tell you all kinds of stories. And our policy was great. We'll help them out. Whatever they need, we will help them as much as we we kind of had standard things. We're just like, we'll just give. I, me and my wife have a habit of keeping you know five dollar bills on us anybody ask us for money we just give them a five dollar bill and just be like yeah if that can help you great um, we don't try to like consequentialize our way to like well if I give them this then they might go abuse it and um, so like that's reacting and I think that's perfectly fine and appropriate reaction, but that's not, like avoiding evil. We're not just trying to avoid something. We're not just trying to react. We're trying to, we're trying, God didn't say we are the vacuum of God. We are the kingdom of God. Like we're a thing that (laughs) exists in the world. Mm. Um, I have a story, but I'm going to leave it off the side because it's too long, but it's interesting. (laughs) Go read, go no, read not, the, uh, not the Gospel of Thomas, but the Acts of Thomas. It's pseudepigraphal. It's, not, it's probably not true. Wait, can you
0: define that word for us?
1: Oh, uh, pseudepigraphal. <laughs> it was written well after the time of Thomas and the Disciples. It's okay. probably written in the two or 300s. It probably has some hints of truth. It's the story of Thomas going to India. Okay, I'm going to tell the story. Okay, tell the story. <laughs> <laughs> it's a short one. He goes to India. He's a carpenter. And, and we actually know that there's like some historical truth to this because the, the gospel seems to have gone to India very early, very extremely early. And there's archaeological evidence for this now as well. Um, so he goes to India and he works with King Gundafar in the Punjab re- region and, and he's a carpenter and he tells him, hey, I'm, I can do – I've come from this area. I can do all this there. And he lists out all the different things that he can make, all the kinds of walls he can build and stuff. It's it's fascinating stuff. And the king says, okay, I want you to be in charge of building my, my new palace in this area. And so he gives him all this money and commissions him to basically be a contractor for this palace. And so uh, Thomas then sets about giving all the money away to, to feed the poor, to, offer, to build housing, to like take care of the needy in that region, the, the destitute. And then months later, the king is coming to inspect his palace uh, that he built for the king. And so Thomas walks him around and shows him all the people who used to be starving, who used to be homeless, who used to be unclothed. And he says, this is your palace, right? And so I think now that's a little sappy. (laughs) I mean, it's good. I mean, there's a sense in which uh, I don't want to say like, therefore, kids, we need to like go out and feed and clothe everybody on the streets. Everything is more complex than that. And if you want to be, if you want to help people on the streets, great. Dive in with somebody who knows what they're doing because there's all kinds of help that's needed there. Um... But what, but what I think is beautiful, there's also a horrific thing that happens after that, which we won't talk about in the story, <laughs> but uh, not that he does wrong. But it's, uh, what's beautiful about that story is he equates the kingdom of – like the, someone who had a physical notion of a kingdom with a palace. And he says, well, it is a physical notion. It's just not the physical palace you were thinking it was going to be. The physical palace is the hands and feet of faith. <laughs> <laughs> it's episode 10 <laughs> the hands and feats of Jesus you can be we will
0: no that's that's helpful to think about um, you know I'm, it also reminds me just how scripture warns us against not knowing like letting your left hand know what your right hand is doing mm. basically like letting letting the good things that you do be done not not even like Hiding them necessarily, but even just doing them as like part of who you are. Not even giving really mental assent to like I'm doing this thing. It's just an overflow of, as you said, like the people that we're being formed into. Yeah, um,
1: it's formation yeah. is what it is. Formation in wisdom, discernment, humility, and restraint. <laughs> Have I said that? <laughs> I feel like I should sneak Does that hurt one to in. to say here. it again.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been really, really good. Um, one last question, just as it pertains to we've been talking about responding to evil by doing. The good, and I'm sure that this question will probably be answered by very similar, in in a very similar way that the previous ones have been. But uh, whenever it comes to human evil versus natural disasters, is there any distinction in the way that we as Christians are called to um, pursue good in those contexts and uh, live out our faith there?
1: Actually, I have something new to say. Okay. (laughs) Um, I think... We should approach human evil the same way we approach natural disasters. We recognize that it's wrong. We recognize that this is not the way it's supposed to be. Something bad has happened here. Something's gone wrong. It's gone against us. And we have to then uh, put together systems of response that address the needs and the problems exactly. So we have no problem Addressing, like, getting troops together, getting organizations, agency, churches. Like, churches have no problem mobilizing in a natural disaster. I think there are all kinds of social disasters, family disasters, organizational evils that are going on. There are unseen hurricanes of evil um, that we can also be organizing around and thinking about how do we respond as a people being formed into the, the people of God.
0: It's mm, a good word. Very good. Well, speaking of good words, do you have any last— Closing thoughts, we're, we're reaching the end, the very end, which is so sad, but I would love to, um, as we look back, just kind of maybe pull out some, um, almost some pillars that we can be thinking of um, as we've been talking about this topic. What are some takeaways that you would love for people to kind of have top of mind as they're finishing this series with us? Um, do you have any closing thoughts personally that you'd like to share about this topic? The floor's open.
1: Well, yeah, I haven't said much so far on the topic. So, um, <laughs> I mean, I, I do think that what was foundational for me in my own thinking and, and like my when I say thinking, I mean in like how I pastored, how I treat my family, how I like engage the world was this. This world is actually unnatural. It's denatured. It's not the way it's supposed to be. And that. And it, But it gives me enough to see what it could be uh, and what it eventually will be. So, kind of the, as it once was, uh, now is, and evermore shall be, we'd have to say, it, it once was in, an, in a nice, functioning, well-oriented, good uh, fashion. It's now broken, but it evermore shall be renewed. And part of what Jesus is doing, I mean, a lot of the provoking that Jesus is doing is saying... Do you not understand that this is not the way it's supposed to be? And there is this other way. Like, uh, should, he, you know, should Jesus heal somebody who's crippled on the Sabbath? And he's like, do you, do you not understand this is not the way he was meant to be? This is not the way anybody will be in the new heavens, new earth. I mean, he's really like perplexed at the fact that they haven't grasped this one simple principle Um and then even more, he brings along people and he trains them to participate in this new way of being a community that uh, will give hints of the way that we all will eventually be, right? Um, and so I think that's encouraging. It's, it is, um, it's something that children, old people, people with dementia, uh, people of any race, color, or language can participate in. It's not exclusionary. Um, and so for me, I'm just excited that people participate, I also, it, you know, I, I wrote an article on conspiracy mindset and kind of talking about why the biblical authors don't like conspiracies and they think that they're they're problematic. Mm-hmm. You know, Jesus saying, you know, you're going to hear rumors of war and like don't listen to any of that, right? Mm-hmm. So he doesn't say here's the skinny. He says don't don't even bother <laughs> listening to that, right? The, don't waste your time. But the prophets actually do say, well, there are certain conspiracy theories that are true, like. Wherever you have people with power or wealth, there will be a temptation, not that they will do it, but there will be a temptation to increase their power and wealth, which would usually have an exploitation. Now, I'm not repeating Karl Marx here. I'm repeating much of the prophets. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a sense in which they don't say it it doesn't have to be the case. I know lots of wealthy Christians that are, like, fantastic with their money. I mean, they use their money and their wealth as in the kingdom of God exactly as they should. Jesus relied on wealthy people who use, the, use their money – to help him establish his kingdom. Um, so it's not that it's necessarily a problem, but they, they highlight it's going to be a temptation for people. That's going to be their temptation. It's going to be a temptation for some people to steal. It's going to be a temptation for some people uh, to get addicted to various substances. Um, so these kind of like, I think at the end of the day, I hope everybody has heard that we've opened the door, you know, we kind of closed the door on the scary demonic evil and said, like, okay, that's a real thing that we need to think about. But the really scary thing is the everyday normal evil, like the banal, you know, the, the simple evil that we can kind of breeze past, uh, which is essentially can be the road uh, that the demons are walking us down and removing the signpost. And then the next thing we know, we've kind of forgotten about God. We've ended up completely focused on ourselves uh, which means we don't care about God we don't care about neighbor we don't care about stranger, we don't care about uh, the French um, and that's basically the worst place we can get uh, I think it's also good for Christians to check themselves lest they wreck themselves and if you I mean if you're in a situation where you're like, yeah me and my church we' never care we've never even thought about the vulnerable in our community we've never cared for them I mean I think it's, that's a great place where you say like well, are we a community of God if that's not how we think about the world? Um, and I've, I would guess that you are. <laughs> if you're asking that question sternly amongst each other, then you probably are, and you just need to start thinking about what is God calling us to, and how can we, how can we participate in this thing that is net, that is the sign as to whether we are the bride of Christ or not.
0: Mm. So well, those are helpful. Thank you for. Um, for sharing those kind of final thoughts with us. Um, we're so thankful for all of you who are listening and who have been joining us throughout these last 10 episodes. We'd love to hear feedback from you. If you have questions, if you have thoughts and comments, um, you're welcome to email us at passagesisrael.org. Uh, we'd love to hear from you and we welcome you for the next season that comes out. We hope to see you again. Um, until next time. Thanks for listening to Season 2 of Discover Your Roots, The Problem of Good and Evil. To find more resources like this, subscribe to our newsletter at passagesisrael.org forward slash foundations. Again, that's passagesisrael.org forward slash foundations. You can also follow us on social media and learn more about Israel and the Bible, at passagesisrael. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe and leave a five-star review. Until next time, I'm Montana DeWitt. Thanks for listening.